0: You're listening to a podcast from the House of Literature in Oslo, presenting adapted versions of lectures and conversations featuring international writers and thinkers. You can find more information about the house and our events on our website.
1: Uh, Welcome, everyone, to the House of Literature. Uh, It's really nice to see you all here. My name is Andreas Delstedt. I'm the program director at the house, Uh, And uh, I am really happy and proud to introduce tonight an author that we have been looking forward to welcoming for a long time, Uh, ever since we heard that his book was going to be translated into Norwegian, uh, which was about around the same time as Jason Diakite, better known as Timbuktu, was here in January, I think. Uh, He was praising Colson White and saying that he was ingenious, a word that we have seen in use many times since about uh, not only the author and his books, but also his books. He has even won a genius grant at some point. Colson Whitehead is the author of seven novels as well as non-fiction in many genres, and ever since his debut in 1999 with the funny, weird, astonishing, and ingenious—I must say—book *The Intuitionist*, about the first black female elevator inspector in an unnamed city, sometime in the future or the past. I'm not sure, after reading it. Uh, he has written true works of fiction that, as only really good fiction can, really make us see reality. And in such a good prose, I must add. All of these characteristics that I now mentioned can be used to describe also his latest novel, uh, and the one that he's come to Norway to talk about now, except for the humor. The Underground Railroad, Den underjordiske Arnban, in the translation of Knut Johansson, has made a sensational journey uh, since it came to Norway and it will continue uh, for onwards uh, ever since it was first published last year. It has been awarded both the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction as well as the National Book Award and it is now on the long list for the Man Booker Prize. And uh, it's a favorite of so many famous people, I'm assuming it would be embarrassing for the author if I mention them all. I will in fact not mention any. To talk with Colson Whitehead tonight, we are very fortunate to have with us Karin Hogan, who is the editor of Klosser book Magazine. Uh, But before they uh, both go on stage, please welcome Colson Whitehead, who will read for us first. Welcome.
2: So howdy, thanks to the House of Literature for having me, and for all you nice folks uh, for coming out, I usually spend Wednesday nights at home in my apartment, uh, weeping over my regrets. So this is a nice change of <laughs> pace from my usual. Um, so, Cora is our protagonist, and she takes the Underground Railroad through a series of uh, adventures, uh, different states. States, and each state is a different state of American possibility. Um, and in this brief section, I'll read. She's in a place that, for many years in my notes, uh, was just called Black Utopia, question mark. It's in Indiana, and it's on a Valentine farm. Uh, and it's a self-sufficient black community, um, separate from the white community around it. They, uh, they're farmers. They take in runaway slaves. Um, and they set up their own little society. And on weekends, they have music and discuss the issues of the day. Sometimes a poet shows up. And in this section, um, a conservative black voice, Mingo, has just given his talk about what's next for the black race. And then his counterpart, Lander, who's a more sort of progressive, visionary type, is about to give his ideas. Brother Mingo made some good points, Lander said. We can't save everyone. But that doesn't mean we can't try. Sometimes, a useful delusion is better than a useless truth. Here's one delusion, that we can escape slavery. We can't. Its scars will never fade. When you saw your mother sold off, your father beaten, your sister abused by some boss or master, did you ever think that you'd sit here today, without chains, without the yoke, among a new family? Everything you ever knew told you that freedom was a trick. Yet here you are. Still we run, tracking by the good full moon to sanctuary. Valentine Farm, this place is a delusion. Who told you the Negro deserved a place of refuge? Who told you that you had that right? Every minute of your life's suffering has argued otherwise. By every fact of history, it can't exist. This place must be a delusion too. Yet here we are. And America, too, is a delusion, the grandest one of all. The white race believes, believes with all its heart, that it is their right to take the land, to kill Indians, make war, enslave their brothers. This nation shouldn't exist if there's any justice in the world, for its foundations are murder, theft, and cruelty. Yet here we are. I'm supposed to answer Mingo's call for gradual progress, for closing our doors to those in need, I'm supposed to answer those who think this place is too close to the grievous influence of slavery and that we should move west. I don't have an answer for you. I don't know what we should do. The word we. In some ways, the only thing we have in common is the color of our skin. Our ancestors came from all over the, all over the African continent. It's quite large. Brother Valentine has the maps of the world in his splendid library. You can take a look for yourself. They had had different ways of subsistence. Different customs spoke a hundred different languages. And that great mixture was brought to America in the holds of slave ships. To the north, to the south, their sons and daughters picked tobacco, cultivated cotton, worked on the largest estates and the smallest farms. We are craftsmen and midwives and preachers and peddlers, Black hands built the White House, the seat of our nation's government, the word we. We are not one people, but many different people. How can one person speak for this great, beautiful race, which is not one race, but many, with a million desires and hopes and wishes for ourselves and our children? For we are Africans in America, something new in the history of the world, without models for what we will become. Color must suffice. It's brought us to this night, this discussion, and it'll take us into the future. All I truly know is that we rise and fall as one, one colored family living next door to one white family. We may not know our way through the forest, but we can pick each other up when we fall, and we will arrive together. When the former residents of Valentine Farm recalled that moment, when they told strangers and grandchildren of how they used to live and how it came to an end, Their voices still trembled years later. In Philadelphia and San Francisco, in the cow towns and ranches where they eventually made a home, they mourned those who died that day. The the air in the room turned prickly, they told their families, quickened by an unseen power. Whether they had been born free or in chains, they inhabited that moment as one, the moment when you aim yourself for the North Star and decide to run. Perhaps they were on the verge of some new order, on the verge of clasping reason to to disorder, of putting all the lessons of their history to bear on the future. Or perhaps time, as it will, lent the occasion a gravity that it did not possess. And everything was, as Lander insisted, they were deluded. But that didn't mean it wasn't true.
0: Thank you for reading that um, passage, and welcome. Um, I think uh, I'd like us to start with the very bold move you make in this novel, where you twist history just so, because the Underground Railroad um, existed during slavery as an organized, illegal business helping uh, escaped slaves to freedom. But in your novel, you make this into an actual railroad operating underground. This is, um, yeah, a bold move.
2: (laughs) Well, I mean, yeah, I guess, you know, uh, the phrase underground railroad was a metaphor. And I guess in the late late 1840s, a slave master woke up one day and his slave had disappeared. And he said it's as if she disappeared on an underground railroad. And that became the term for this human network of people who would take slaves, maybe 100 miles, to the next person, give them material aid, hide them. Um, but when you're a kid and you first hear about it, when you're like eight or nine, uh, you hear those words and think it's a literal subway beneath the earth, which is very impractical. Um, and so I was sitting on my couch uh, about 17 years ago and came across a reference and just thought, oh, wouldn't it be a weird idea for a book? Um, if to make this metaphor into something real. And uh, so it was really just having a kooky idea, what can I do with it?
0: Yeah. Um, but when we're speaking about these escape routes, the journey from slavery and oppression to freedom, uh, it makes it sound more linear um, than it is because your novel manages to Show how complex and how uh, the uh, the different stages of freedom. Um, You touched upon it in the section you read, um, and Cora manages to escape, but she continues to be bound by um, bound even after her escape.
2: Well, I, I, um, you know, making the railroad real is, is the premise, not much of a story, and so you know, way back then, I decided to add that complicating element where each state that she goes to is a different state of American possibility, like Gulliver's Travels. And for years and years, I, I would tell my friends about the book, and they'd, and they'd say, oh, that sounds like a dumb idea. And then finally, <laughs> I started saying, like Gulliver's Travels, and they finally understood uh, uh, what I was trying to do. And they're like, oh, it makes, makes sense now. Um, but I, uh, I guess when I had the idea, I didn't think I could pull it off. I didn't think I was a good enough writer. And um, I decided to wait to write more books maybe become a better writer, maybe if I was older and not like a sort of Gen X 30-year-old, I might be a little more mature and bring that to the book. Um, so over the years, you know, I, I, in the back of my head, uh, while I was putting off the book, I toyed with different possibilities. And that initial decision to make it real allowed me to play with history. It immediately has fantastic effects. And so um, it's not a historical, straight historical novel and allowed me to have that freedom to play with history in the way I do.
0: Exactly. And some of them, you know, the states that Cora um, travels through have different degrees of um, oppression and different customs and attitudes toward black. And um, um, South Carolina is interesting because it seems like a haven, but then she discovers that they are kept in... um, shackles they can't see.
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, you know, when she goes under, underground, I sort of depart reality, and each state has its own sort of different culture. So South Carolina seems to be a very benevolent place. Uh, it's a place where um, the government of the state is buying slaves, and then giving them housing and education and, um, and work, sort of like in a strange parallel of the Great Society programs in the 1960s in America. Uh, But of course, this being a novel, there's a sinister side. Um, And then in, say, North Carolina, um, which in my notes was white supremacist, question mark, uh, state, uh, black people are are outlawed. And and there I sort of borrow more liberally from different places. And so um, Cora spends time in an attic based on the story of Harriet Jacobs, who was a runaway slave who spent time in an attic uh, in real life. And there's echoes of that in Anne Frank, and so I sort of bring in uh, Nazi Germany. And there's bring in parallels between the resistance and the Underground Railroad. Um, Nazis borrowed their scientific racism from American scientists in the 19th century. So I was thinking, how can I open up this discussion of the oppression of black people and enlarge it so that it encompasses uh, the oppression of Jews as well and other people in, in, in different countries. And so all these different states allowed me to uh, mix and match history and make a larger conversation and just just a linear story, realistic story, of a slave running north.
0: Exactly. Um, but um, even while you're playful and uh, free in your use of history, um, you are also as i understand it rigorous with um, about portraying the lives and the horrific um trials of the slaves in a realistic and historical manner um but you and you it's the very violent reality that you describe but you do it in a very um calm fashion could you
2: well yeah the narrator is sort of matter of fact mm. uh about the brutality on the plantation. Um, you know, the, the, bu- the book started with a whimsical idea, of making it real. Then, of course, uh, once you actually bring in historical reality, um, I felt the duty to make it as realistic as possible. Um, it's not a story of like a Gone with the Wind of a white lady being self-actualized against the backdrop of slavery. Um, <laughs> this is the view from uh, the slave quarters, and um, you know, do, coming to the research as a grown-up and appreciating the, the gravity of, of slavery in a different way. Um, before I started playing with the reality, I wanted to get, get it straight, to testify as much as I could for my ancestors who somehow survived, the ones who didn't survive. Um, and, and so Georgia, the first section, is is realistic. And, and the tone comes from the slave narratives and oral histories uh, captured in the 1930s by... Um, Researchers sent out by the government who interviewed former slaves. Um, they would describe, the, in the slave narratives of the time and also the retrospective accounts from the 1930s, they would describe the most horrific, uh, violent thing in a matter of fact voice. You know, in two sentences, you, you could go from, uh, My mother was beaten to death, and then the next day I started in the fields for the first time. And there's so much contained in those two sentences, but um, if your whole life if violence is, is your everyday experience, you don't dramatize it, you don't dress it up you let the facts speak for themselves and so I borrowed that matter of fact voice for depicting the violence in the uh, well in most parts of the book
0: mm. There's a, quote, a great quote about this from your book um, uh, it says that uh, they are subject to travesties so imaginative in their monstrousness that the mind refuses to accommodate them But also travesties so routine and familiar that they were a kind of weather.
2: Yeah, you you know, uh, you compartmentalize, and and again, you don't have to. um, You know, it's hard for the mind to dwell on them. And when you, if they if they become routine, then you don't have to embellish them. And I definitely I think it worked for the way the narrator in this book works.
0: I was thinking also about your description um, when we first uh, meet Cora as a young girl, um, because so much in your novel touches upon community, um, the way people can uh, find refuge in each other or the way work can unite. But also, um, when we first meet Cora, she is at a place where it's every man has to fend for himself. And... Um, uh, the bonds of community are, to a great extent, severed. So why was it important for you to sort of start off there?
2: Well, I mean, I was writing the book in 2015, and I had to have a credible, realistic plantation for myself. I think in pop culture, we have this idea of the plantation where it's 100 slaves and maybe one is the Uncle Tom, but everyone else is helping each other. And from, you know, right in the 21st century, we know of trauma and... Uh, post-traumatic stress, uh, they're incredibly damaged, and they're fighting for an extra uh, bit of food. Um, there's a fight early in the book about Cora's uh, garden. That's a precious resource. And so in trying to make it realistic for me, I had to, I guess, bring my dim view of humanity into it. And so, um, uh, I think if in general, you have a uh, 100 people in a room, maybe 10 are great, 10 are terrible, you know who you are, and in the middle, we're all sort of going back and forth. Um, if you've been, if you grew up in a plantation, you've been raped, dehumanized, brutalized your whole life. Obviously, that ten percent who are really great goes down, and most of us are, are damaged uh, and aren't uh, at our at our best. And so, and if you read if you read slave narratives, you know they'll talk about um, slaves mistreating each other because that's. What they've been brought into and so it was important for me just writing in 2015 as a, a modern writer a modern person to accommodate what we know about human psychology and and present that trauma in the book
0: mm. and is that something you have missed in the literary tradition speaking to these themes
2: um, i won't say i missed it i just um felt i had to do it I don't think, I didn't think I was writing against anybody, I, but I had to do it my own way. And whether, you know, I, I move genres a lot. My previous novel was about the post-apocalypse. Um, uh, the novel before that was a coming-of-age story. And so I'm always thinking what I like about these traditions, what I dislike, how can I make them my own. Um, so for me, part of the process is taking stories that have been told many, many, many times and then trying to figure out how, how they can work for me with my particular interests.
0: Yeah. Um, And uh, this is a book where we meet uh, the young Cora, who uh, escapes, and we also hear a lot about her mother, Mabel, um, which also escaped. And this is a book littered with tales about um, women singing lullabies for their dead children or, or stolen children. Uh, or being raped and I find that it's a book that's very much attuned to the to women experiences uh, was that something that just grew naturally out of the material or did you want to set out doing that?
2: No, I mean partially, you know, o- over the years I had various vague narrators in my head, uh, a man running to take himself out of slavery, a man looking for a spouse who'd been sold off um, a parent looking for a child and when I finally committed to doing the book about three years ago, um, I was thinking of the slave narratives, that, slave narratives that inspired me. And I mentioned Harriet Jacobs, who um, wrote her story of running away. Uh, she spent seven years in an attic uh, before getting safe passage. And she writes early on in her memoir um, about how when a slave girl becomes a slave woman, uh, you enter a, new, enter a new, more terrible stage of slavery. Uh, You're prey to your master's desires, if you weren't before. You're supposed to pump out babies, because more babies means more slaves, and more slaves means more money, more property for the master. And it just seemed, it's a a different uh, kind of slave hell than what befell the men, and that seemed worthy of exploration. And then just as a writer, I'm trying to do different things, and I I hadn't had a mother-daughter dynamic before, um, so that seemed worthy of exploring. And then... My last couple of narrators were very meditative dudes. And so, in the <laughs> back of my head, a voice was saying, Don't do the same shit, Colson. You know, mix it up. <laughs> so, um, so, I think switching genres is a way to like, challenge yourself and figure out different ways of doing stories. And then picking different kinds of protagonists, of course, determine the story you're telling. And that is a way to, you know, make a challenge with each book.
0: Mm, exactly. Um, I also f- think it's an important trait in your book that um, you bring in the Native American destiny. You touched upon it in the section you read from. Um, and it is connected. As um, as you phrase it in the book, it's a matter of stolen, stolen bodies working stolen land. Um, and could you say something about the um, um, ideas of manifest destiny that... Enabled white people to rationalize this.
2: Sure, I mean it's uh, manifest destiny and also white supremacy, um, all the sort of imperial powers that aren't, you know, don't only belong to American's history. Uh, obviously, uh, Europe as well, um, a lot of countries. But um, people, you know, it's a sort of a cliche to say slavery is America's original sin. Well, before there was slavery, there were Native Americans, and their land was taken from them. They were wiped out by disease and uh, very engineered campaigns to exterminate them. So, um, so that's part of uh, part of the story I'm trying to tell. It's part of the story of America. Um, and at different at different points, uh, Ridgway, a slave catcher, is, is a sort of a good vehicle for some of these thoughts. Um, he's a uh, one of the main articulators of white supremacy in the book, um, but uh, all—I all, mean, for me, all those things—Manifest Destiny and, and imperialism and white supremacy all sort of come together with the very capitalist uh, story of slavery. Uh, you're you're there to make money. Um, uh, all all sort of combine to create a uh, the sort of dark narrative of American history, and and that's and so. You know I made the decision to have this fanta- this fantasy element, and then it allowed me just to have to have since the book is rebooting every sixty pages as she goes to a new state to have different conversations with history and so um, our country's relationship to Native Americans is part of it mm,
0: exactly and you mentioned this wonderful oral history project in the 1930s that you used as a source um where um, um, the sort of last living slaves were interviewed. And uh, um, could you say something more about how you used this resource and what it taught you?
2: Sure. Well, I mean, um, a lot of, all the research I did was primary sources. I don't like to leave the house. If you uh, leave the house, there's too many uh, people out there. And so I try to avoid that. Um, and luckily... Uh, uh, a lot of stuff I used was in the public domain. And in the 1930s, Great Depression, uh, the U.S. government trying to get people back to work hired writers to interview former slaves. And some of them are just you know, two paragraphs long. Uh, they're accounts of their former lives 60 years before. Some are 10 pages. And they really provide a, a, a real um, uh, a big overview of different kinds of plantations you could live on. The a 100-person plantation we know from pop culture, a uh, small family farm. You could be a single domestic in a mansion in Baltimore. And um, as a fiction writer, uh, all the sort of smaller details uh, were great fuel. I remember early on coming across a reference to uh, a woman who was, right, was talking about how once a year, their master would give every, all the slaves in the plantation wooden shoes. And it's like, wooden shoes? Um... And then, so that makes me thinking of who's the carpenter? Does he make chairs, uh, t- load months of the year, and then he gets this big order from the plantation to make 100 pairs of shoes uh, for different slaves? How do you uh, figure out their sizes? So who's that guy? And then... Um, uh, so, I mean... There, there, there's so many, and, and I could just gather all these these different sort of really minor details and weave them into the book. Mm.
0: But it's uh, so um, fantastic that these actual voices are recorded for. um, And um, uh, I'm wondering about the representation of the history of slavery in the States because um, a couple of years ago, um, John J. Cummings III redeveloped uh, the Whitney Plantation as a memorial site for the public. And he posed in the Washington Post the question, the U.S. has 35,000 museums. Why is only one about slavery? So how is it actually presented in the American consciousness? since?
2: public um it's not i mean most people i think get their real introduction to slavery from roots you know 1970 um for i think in my memory i remember like in fourth grade there was 10 minutes on slavery and then 40 minutes on abraham lincoln and i was like okay we're done um and maybe in 10th grade 10 minutes on the civil rights movement 40 minutes on martin luther king and then we're done so it's, it's it's barely taught i hope it's you know taught more now you know um my daughter, who's 12, has had a few units on it. Um, although, like, ten, like, on the Greeks. It's always, like, Greek month in her school. Um, but, uh, uh, but no, we skip over it. I mean, you know, definitely our educational system is not directing its energies towards uh, exploring African-American history, Native American history, and sort of skipping over to um, uh, the highlights, which generally tend to be highlights of imperialism and and, and colonization. So. Yeah,
0: that's long. Yeah, but, but, a but, long but, but I, I
2: did go to Whitney Plantation. It's really great. Yeah? Um, my one foray into the field was going to New Orleans. I'm going to take some plantation tours. So I got, I got on the bus. I guess I was like halfway through the book and just wanted to get you know the atmosphere of the South. And um, I was the only black person on the tour bus. And the operator is sort of giving us a description as we go north to the plantations outside the city. And she says, um, you know, it was hard work. You know, running a plantation wasn't all just sitting on the porch drinking mint juleps. You need to keep track of the accounts, keep track of the workers. So immediately, we're not even talking about slaves, we're talking about workers. Um, And I went to two plantations. One is the Whitney Plantation, which has been renovated and devoted to the slave experience. And it's very educational, and you know, for a writer, I would just stand in front of the monuments and take down names and dates of people and uh, prices of what the people were sold for. Um, but it's a really well-done museum, the Whitney Plantation, just referenced. And then we got back on the bus and went to the Oak Alley Plantation, which you've probably seen in movies. It's in um, Beyonce videos, Interview with a Vampire, and uh, it's definitely not from the slaves' experience. Um, uh, in the brochure they have hotel rooms and you can have like an authentic antebellum experience, a wedding you can put on costumes, get married like slave owners um, and in the hotel rooms it says that if you want to break free from hotel chains you can stay in our rooms um, and, uh, and that's why I don't leave the house I like, like to do research at home so I avoid that stuff
0: yeah. I don't blame you Uh, Yeah, (laughs) Um, there is a section in your book where Cora is working at a museum of natural wonders uh, that seems related to the plantation you just described and her job is to act as an uh, actor in the dioramas they have on display and the first room of course is called Scenes from Darkest Africa And this whole section of your book reminds us that it's, of course, not only important to remember, but it's everything hinges upon the way we tell it and what we remember. So, was there anything you wanted to avoid? Some pitfalls you want to avoid in the telling of this story of slavery?
2: Well, I think to not not be, not not do things I've seen before, uh, not have. Uh, a kind of, you know, kitschy representation of, of plantation life. Um, so, but I guess I'm, I'm always trying to do that and trying to, I'm always, like, very focused on trying to find my own way into it. Um, that section you mentioned is important to me because there's, there's, there's a lot going on in it. It's um, Cora is given a job as a, basically, a human actor in, a, in these different dioramas, displays about... Um, African life, which was supposed to be authentic. And the first one is Darkest Africa, and she sort of poses in front of a, a hut. And the next window is um, the Middle Passage, where she is up on deck, sort of swabbing the deck. And, of course, that's not how slaves are transported. Um, and the final one is she's um, a seamstress on a plantation. And, you know, obviously I'm talking about how we represent history and sanitize it. Um, uh, but for me, there's, the, there's, that. there's that, the story gets sort of broader there as we get more into the I uh, move things around. It's important for me to have Cory in there because she's always been gazed upon, and, and whether she's in the fields or there. And um, she starts off as a piece of property without agency and personhood. And when she's uh, behind the glass, she starts looking out and gazing back upon the people looking at her. And for, for me, that's an important moment, moment of agency. Um, and then, as a writer, you know I've been very digressive in the past, and I have very you know narrators at Nataran for pages and pages about TV dinners, which I like, and I think that's one way of telling a story. But um, the Museum of Natural Wonders was two pages, and I was like, oh, I'm done. And I think like old me, this is the virtue of waiting. If I'd written it ten years ago or five years ago, I would have like done who's the curator and what's his shtick and where do you go to school and uh, who makes the little things in the diorama. But um, I got to that point, that point, you know, around page 95 and um, was like, oh, I can just move on. I don't have to indulge that sort of encyclopedic narrator I used to have. And so so that section is important for me in terms of being the person who wrote it and then thematically and then for try- someone trying to figure out different places where Cora can become a, a person. Hmm.
0: I agree that it's a really important and beautiful moment when she has, you know, the agency and starts to look back. And it's not only that she starts to look back at the audience, but she decides to sort of pick out one in the crowd and give him or her the evil eye every time.
2: Yes, yeah. (laughs) And, you know, the weak link in the crowd uh, in front of her. And, you know, she reasons that, you you know, together all the links are very strong, but if you find, you know, the weak link, you can maybe break the chain, so... You know, that becomes part of her philosophy she's developing as she's moving north.
0: There's a certain fire in her. Um, so we have to talk, of course, also about the current situation in America, which is extraordinarily tense and white supremacists. You're talking about
2: Game of Thrones? <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, we might as well. <laughs> sure. There are um, white supremacists and Nazis marching. In American streets and the White House. Well, I don't know what you would like to say about the White House.
2: Um, yeah. Well, I mean, uh, yeah. I guess in terms of the, I guess I've been asked. You know, the book came out in August last year, and when people wanted to talk about the political situation, they would ask, was, were you thinking about Black Lives Matter when you were writing the book?" Because that's their sort of way of entry into Black life, um, <laughs> and. Uh, you know, a, a, a movement raising awareness about police brutality linked to a, um, a, shoot, a police shooting in Ferguson now almost three years ago or two years ago, three. Um, and that, I guess that was new news, new information for some people, that we have a severe police brutality problem. It wasn't news for me. Um, my experience in the States is that every three years, there's a really high-profile murder um, committed by white law enforcement. And it starts a conversation, and then it trails off, and then comes back again, whether it's Rodney King, Abner Louima, uh, Eric Garner, all sorts of people, all all number of people my whole lifetime have been cut down. And um, uh, so that fact was not new to me, and I wasn't thinking about Ferguson. Um, And then, of course, we elected a white supremacist President, um, someone who reemerged from reality television uh, on a political scene by uh, saying that Barack Obama wasn't a legit pre- uh, president because he was a secret Muslim. Because of course, any achievement by a black person cannot be earned; there's always something counterfeit about it. Um, started his, his second campaign by saying that uh, Mexicans are rapists, and said, you know, a variety of. Uh, racist things um, culminating in last week when he was saying you know some of the neo nazis were very fine people people he emboldened uh, that they could march without masks you know they didn 't care uh, that they would be identified, some of them are regretting that because they 've been fired from various jobs and stuff like that, but um, they 're so emboldened by his um, agenda and the way he carries himself and the way he articulates his philosophy about the world, that they feel free to um, wave the Nazi flag in the streets of of Virginia. So um, one thing I found heartening was that even Republicans were like, that's really out of bounds. You know, usually uh, it's hard for them to say something's racist, but even they were like, neo-Nazis, that's really crazy. So um, we have it's not going to end anytime soon. Hopefully it doesn't end in a nuclear war. Um, and that's all I have to say. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, um, one of the issues in Charlottesville and other places are um, the statues and memorial sites uh, that commemorate southern history and the rising demands to bring these statues down. So, um, how do you view this controversy and could you explain to us how the South views its history?
2: Well, I mean, um, you know, uh, there are a lot, like, you know, people call them dead-enders, people who still celebrate the the vast failure of the Confederacy. Um, frankly, you know, uh, I like to forget my failures never, never happened. Um, I tend to not dwell upon my grandparents or great grandpappy's uh, failures. If they committed treason, I wouldn't put up monuments to them. But that's my weird thing, I guess. Um, so you know, obviously, uh, a lot of them are put up at times of black progress to uh, keep blacks in the south in their place. You know, put up a monument to people who want to. Uh, uh, Eradicate them, and you know, scare the folks in the 1920s or 1940s. Um, so, uh, you know, take them down, put up some statues of Harry Tubman, Walt Disney, John Carpenter, great Americans. John Carpenter, director of *Escape from New York*, personal hero. Um, yeah.
0: yeah. So. Um You mentioned Game of Thrones and um, we'll actually be talking about them because the people behind Game of Thrones are making a series, a new series called Confederates that will um, portray the South, uh, the history of the South with a a counterfactual premise that the South isn't defeated and um, slavery continues to thrive. And uh, um, a colleague of yours, uh, Roxanne Gay, profiled feminist and author, she wrote um, a piece in the New York Times in the wake of this news saying that uh, she uh, she said, I shudder to imagine the enslaved black body in their creative hands. And I don't want to watch slavery fan fiction. So there seems to be a lot of um, unrest about how history will continue to be handled and the portrayal of southern history are you uneasy about this as well are you nervous
2: i'm uh uneasy about traveling the south uh um, i think these these questions are really clear-cut why do you have monuments to traitors who declared war in their own country um in terms of uh confederate as a lot of people have said you know black people don't have to imagine in a speculative fiction where the Confederacy still rises. And of course, last week we had you neo know, Nazis marching in KKK. So um, so to me, all, the, all this stuff is really obvious. In terms of Confederate, um, anyone can make art about anything. If you use your em- empathy and intelligence and pull it off, uh, you've pulled it off. And if you fuck it up and get called out on it because your main character who's black is racist, you know, the racist portrayal, take the hit and do better next time. So that's my opinion on that mm. uh, Game of Thrones does not have a very um, uh, um, enlightened depiction of enslaved people or people of color. Mm. So I don't have much faith in those guys. Uh, if you got good reviews, maybe I'll check it out. I'm not going to say don't make it, I don't have to watch it. And if, if you feel offended by it, don't watch it. You know? mm.
0: So, was your book uh, received um, differently in the South than from the North?
2: No, I mean, I think, uh, well, for one thing, most people don't read, so if you come out to one of my readings, <laughs> uh, you're probably engaged with the book. Like, you're not going to protest a book about Underground Railroad. If you're super racist, you're going to be drinking a six-pack and, like, worshipping your statue of Robert E. Lee. Yeah. You know? So, um, so if you co- if you're live in the South and come to an event I'm doing, you're generally engaged and want to talk about the book. Um, I find the more weirder responses in places where there's a very small black population, New Hampshire or Tucson. Uh, basically, the whiter the county, the weirder the question. And I get on stage for the Q&A, and generally, it becomes a chance to ask a black eye a weird question. Um, again, not in the South, but in, in Tucson. And so I'll get things like, um, I'm, a, I'm a teacher, and one of my white students touched the hair of a black student. What do I do? And I'm like, I didn't, I wrote a book about the Underground Railroad, not Mr. Whitehead's Guide to White Etiquette. Um, maybe he shouldn't touch the black kid's hair, anybody's hair, without asking. Uh, so, um, yeah, so I get weird questions where there's a ver- very small black population, and that's the regional differences I've, I've noticed. Mm.
0: So, uh yeah, the racial divide in contemporary America. I, I, um, I read a very revealing quote about that because um, your background is um, privileged. You, you, come, you grew up in Manhattan, and your parents had a, uh, a place in the Hamptons where you could spend the summers. And um, I find it so revealing about the racial divide in contemporary America that, uh, to quote The Guardian... Um, it was a position of privilege considered so unavailable to African-Americans that the parents of white classmates would speculate about whether he and his brother were African princes.
2: Well, yeah, I mean, uh, that's from... uh, I'm not sure about The Guardian person, but that's from From uh, a book of mine called Sag Harbor. It's about growing up in the 80s. And my brother and I went to... uh, a school where you had to wear a jacket and tie. And I remember one time in eighth grade, we were walking, uh, just walking to school, and uh, we stopped by this old white guy who was like, "Uh, are your parents working at the UN? Like, (laughs) hell no, we're just actually black people in America. Um, (laughs) And it's not, you know, uh, uh, I grew up in a uh, middle-class community. And so all my friends' parents were teachers. They were doctors, lawyers. Um, and so I guess it's news to some people that there's a, a black middle class. Uh, <laughs> it wasn't necessarily new to me, and I guess in, in the book Sag Harbor, I talk about that. And like, but it's um, really more about just forming an identity as a teenager. It's about growing up in the '80s, and um, uh, whether you're wondering about is it okay to listen to. Susie the banshees if you're black, uh, or um, uh, being stopped by weird white guys on the street because they think you're um, you know your parents work at the, the u n it's uh, about finding a place in the world and, and uh, finding metaphors in blackness for universal identity formation moments mm-hmm.
0: so um While we um, can talk about Cora and her historical situation, let's not forget that it continues and it continued for a long time. Um, I want to mention a book called um, The Green Book, which was a travel guide for blacks that listed bars and restaurants and hotels where they could expect to be safe. Um, and the first edition of this was published in 1936, and the last one in 1966. So this is a so recent history, to have sort of a safe travels companion's guide in the 60s. It's not very long ago. Um, so are you optimistic or pessimistic as to how fast things are getting better?
2: Uh, things aren't getting better fast at all, but um, uh, I think as human beings, you know, we're pretty stupid and only progress to our sort of better selves very, very slowly. Um, I asked my brother-in-law, who's 60, you know, if the conditions in America right now are like the worst he remembers, and he said, "Well, we're not being lynched in the streets," and I was like, "I guess that's true," which is not a really high bar to. <laughs> have. Um, But obviously, you know, my grandparents couldn't conceive of the world we live in now and my parents couldn't conceive of how things have changed in their lifetime. Um, I could never conceive of a a black president. Um, I think, you know, you guys have an election coming up and conservative forces war with liberal and more progressive forces and there's a back and forth and we make a little bit of progress and then we slide back. Um, uh, so I think that's human history in general. Um, I think, um, as a father, I have to hope that the world will get better for my kids. Will not be destroyed in nuclear holocaust by Donald Trump, and um, uh, and I think they have been born into a better world than I was born into, you know, forty-something years ago. So. I don't have much faith in people, but um, I guess things, we generally sort of plot along and stumble forward into a better world bit by bit.
0: I think that's an optimistic note to <laughs> conclude. It's like Trump is two steps back, but we can stumble forward again. Sure, yeah. yeah. Okay. So thank you. Thank
2: you. Thank you. Thank you.